Good morning, saints. He is risen. <laughs> Praise God. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Colossians. You can open there with me if you have your Bible. We are in Colossians. We have a marvelous passage for this Easter Sunday. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be picking up in verse 15, uh, just reading through verse 16. This is the reading of God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Of saints, it's a great day and it's a bittersweet day. Easter's a great day. There's a special joy to it. On the one hand, we're celebrating what we celebrate every single week, but on the other hand, it's joyful. It's joyful. I wouldn't want to lose that joy and wouldn't want to take it from you. I hear our, our kids just belting their lungs out, and I think, there's that joy. There's that joy. Thank God for it. Why do I say it's bittersweet? I think it's bittersweet because we all know the world we live in. We all know the country we live in. And I, I don't think any of us are of the opinion that things are getting better and better. I think we almost of one accord recognize that there is a, a growing darkness growing difficulty. I think each generation tends to look at the next and say, I'm sorry, but it's going to be harder for you than it was for me. We look at our country and there's all kinds of things that are going bad ways. The bittersweet side of it is that on this day, the name of Christ echoes across our land, a land that's running from the Lord, a land that's rebelling against the Lord, a land in so many ways has rejected the Lord, and yet this day, there is this echo of Jesus Christ. He's being proclaimed in pulpits, he's being stirred up in hearts everywhere, people who say, I haven't been to church in 20 years, and yet today, for some reason, they're thinking of that empty tomb. It's God's kindness to us that even in our rebellion, the echo of the gospel is continuing to go out. People are reminded once more of who this Jesus is. What made him different? What did he do? It's bittersweet because maybe once upon a time, the name of Jesus was absolutely trumpeted in our lands, and it's not like that right now. But praise God that we can hear his name at all. Praise God that on this day, his common grace, there are people with no walk to speak of with the Lord, and yet they're thinking about Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of the challenge then that we face. There still are some 
who know the name of Jesus, who know about him, and yet are not walking with him. And my prayer for them ends up being the exact same prayer I have for all of us. It's to get to know this Jesus better. Whatever light you have been entrusted with, get to know him better. You may be on the opposite side of that spectrum. 20 years you've been walking with the Lord. That light is shining brighter and brighter. And even so, I would say to you, get to know him better. Go deeper, brothers. That applies to all of us. Go deeper into who this Jesus Christ is. This is a passage I will confide in you. This is a passage that was hard and is hard. I came to this with just sort of this burden of saying, what am I going to say? It's one thing to read it in your morning devotionals and say, oh, that's a wonderful spot. It's another thing to say, and I'm supposed to tell people about it. I'm supposed to proclaim these things. And, and I felt a, a burden about this passage, this sense that I will never be able to say what this passage deserves to be said about it. It soars. It soars. Or you flip it around, it dives so deep. So deep. We have this Jesus. We hear about him as Redeemer. We just talked about that, right? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then Paul is not done yet. Paul keeps going deeper. And the Lord today, he's calling us to go deeper. One time, I have this just uh, amazingly special experience that I had when I was 18. I was swimming in the ocean with friends. And we were in this, like, little, like, I don't know, bay, lagoon kind of thing, and we are swimming with dolphins in this amazing lagoon. And, you know, we've got the, the snorkels, and we've got the flippers, and we're trying to keep up with the dolphins, and the dolphins, oh man, nothing makes you feel slow like trying to swim next to a dolphin. You didn't get anywhere near those beautiful creatures. And we're, we're swimming out there, and I, I remember... Uh, my friend spotted underneath the surface sort of like a stone arch on the bottom of that water of that bay. And they're like, let's go swim underneath it. And I'm looking at this thing, I'm like, nope. Absolutely I'm not swimming underneath this mysterious arch underneath the, uh, the ocean water. Like, I don't know how deep it is. I'm not that good a swimmer. I'm not the guy who's going to like, drown, but I'm not, like, impressed with my swimming or something. I, nothing about this made me say, oh, of course, I'm going to swim underneath this stone archway, underneath the waters, the depth of it all. I don't know. It, it either warned me away or it scared me, however you want to phrase it. The Lord gives us a passage like this, and he says, swim deeper, dive deeper, and for any number of us, that might scare us away. Because one way you could phrase this today is today is a day to go deeper into our theology, into our Christology. Some of you that excites, but any number of you be like, eh, I'm not really looking to swim under that stone arch. Whether that scares me or I just find it totally uninteresting, 
I don't want to go deeper. You call it theology, you call it Christology, and it sounds impersonal. That's the last thing in the world we want, is for our study of God, our study of Christ, to ever come across as impersonal. Today, we are called to get to know more deeply, to get to know better Jesus Christ. This is not some topic. This is a person. We seek today to know a person better. And so yes, we've got to go deeper. And we're going to go deeper for weeks now. To get through this section is going to take us weeks for sure. Paul is going to say, no, you can hold your breath. Swim with me. Dive with me. Explore the depths of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to encourage you. Swim with me. Dive with me. Don't give up because we're going deep. No, because we're going deep, come along for the ride. Let's see just how much deeper we can go when it comes to this Jesus Christ. Our passage is actually the most famous passage in the book of Colossians. And it's rightfully so. I think you come to this and, and we just instinctively feel it. We are flying. The kinds of things that Paul is saying, you might describe them as poetic, you might describe them as lofty, but you sense it, you feel it. And it's not just you that feels it. Scholars uh, across the study of this book have long looked at this section and they've actually described it as a hymn. They describe it as a hymn because Paul actually he, he shifts in even the grammar that he's using. When he writes, he writes long, complicated sentences. He makes arguments. Here, he shifts into these short, indicative, if that mean, means anything to you, statements about Jesus Christ. And so scholars have actually long looked at this and they've thought that Paul is actually citing kind of a, an ancient hymn, an ancient confession, you might say, because this isn't like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound kind of hymn, but it's something traditional. It's something uh, that, that appears to have been existing, as in, if I quoted to you Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved, you could say, a wretch like me. Paul can cite this, and to some extent, these people probably know what he's talking about. He is using this hymn that they already know to begin to respond to that false teaching that the Colossians were being uh, sort of attacked by, subjected to. He takes something they know, and he's going to use the concepts in it for, for many verses from here on out to help them understand this problem they're facing and how Christ answers that and helps them in their walk. If you can remember, what we said is, it's hard to figure out exactly what the false teachers at Colossae were teaching, but there's clearly some themes that you see here. There's an undermining of the sufficiency of Christ alone. So it's kind of like, oh, you have just Jesus? Well, that's good and all, but we've got to give you more. So you'll hear this talk about what is like sufficiency, what is fullness. You'll hear that theme come up again. Paul takes this hymn, 
And he responds, not by saying, here's a list of ten items that the false teachers are all doing wrong. He actually starts out by saying, look at who Jesus is. It's actually not a bad start. Not a bad start for us to just consider life in general. Start with who Jesus is. And we can get to the specifics later. Paul wants to lay them that foundation. Who is this Savior? Who is this Jesus Christ? Once we have that foundation under our feet, then we can start tackling more specific challenges that they were facing in Colossae. What you are going to see as he looks at who Jesus Christ is, is that there is none like Jesus. There is none like Jesus. Jesus for any number of reasons. The first one he starts out with in the beginning of verse 15. There is none like Jesus to show us God. Hear the passage again. He is the image of the invisible God. You might hear that and think, wow, that sounds really great. What's that mean? So let's break it down. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, image. When you start with that image language in the Bible, you cannot help but go back to that original image bearer. In the book of Genesis, in the creation of man, chapter 1, verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created it. Male and female, he created them. major thing that Paul likes to do is he tells us about the first Adam and then the final Adam. Adam who was created and fell, then that final Adam, Jesus Christ, who came and accomplished everything that the first Adam failed at. That first Adam was made in the image of God. And there's so much you could say about being an image bearer of God, but we can just summarize it like this. Humanity was made like God. We are different from all of creation in this very important way. We are made like God, and being his image bearers, we represent God. We reflect God. There's so much to be said about being image bearers that you can just have that as your nutshell summary. We remember that humanity was made in the image of God, and then you hear this phrase differently. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is that image. We were made in the image of God. Jesus is that image. You may say it this way, Jesus is not the copy. He's the original which is kind of a mind-blowing thing to wrap your mind around. What the scripture will say about Jesus as the image of God is that he is the perfect revelation of God, of who God is. So if you're asking, what's God like? Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us. You look at Jesus and you see revealed the nature of God. You look at Jesus and you see revealed the character of God. Jesus is the image of the, then let's touch on this, invisible. 
God. He is the image of the invisible God. And here again, we come back to Scripture, John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God cannot be seen in his fullness. Famous story, Moses. Exodus chapter 33. God, I just want to see your glory. God famously tells him, no one can see me and live. We hear there this fundamental statement of God in his glory, God in who he really is, and then who we are. No one can see me and live. What he ends up doing for Moses is he hides him in the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand. And when he's passed by, Moses has the blessing and the honor of being able to sort of see him pass by in his goodness. But humanity can't handle the full thing. Humanity cannot handle seeing God in his fullness. And this is when you have to hear this statement. Jesus is the image that reveals the invisible God. We put all this together and we begin to see that what Jesus is accomplishing is truly what no one else could. He's the better Adam, the final Adam. He is the image bearer who comes along and reveals and represents the Father perfectly. There never was a fall. The devil did his worst, and he never fell. He's the better Adam, but then on top of that, Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. This is the reason this passage is so utterly hard to preach. Seeing God had never been possible before. Then Jesus comes by this miraculous work of the incarnation. He takes on flesh and he reveals the God who we had never been able to see before. Words are lacking. Words are lacking. But we can say this, there is none like Jesus to show us God. There's also none like Jesus in all the creation. So you look at verse 15 again, the second half of it. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, for him. None like him in all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation, a word that you've got to define. You have to understand. There are whole cults that are practically dedicated to getting this word wrong. So you call him the firstborn of all creation. You might ask, does that mean Jesus was created? Does that mean that Jesus had a beginning? No. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has always existed. That word firstborn is not firstborn like we would describe my brother. He's the firstborn. He will remind you of that. I'm secondborn. 
not being used like you would use of us. It's being used in that sense that a firstborn had the special status of being the heir of the father. The firstborn then was known for preeminence. The firstborn was known for superiority, this dignity of their position. And that is what is being ascribed to Jesus. He is the firstborn. He is the superior one over all of creation. And this is what God said he would do with that Messiah, that long-awaited Messiah. Psalm 89, verse 27, God said he would make the Messiah this, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. To call Jesus the firstborn of all creation is to say he is supreme over all creation. Verse 16 is then going to go further. It's going to explain what makes Jesus supreme. You see that by that word for. For by him all things were created. It's explaining what makes this Jesus supreme. By him all things were created. This is again when Jesus starts growing and growing and growing from these popular understandings of who people think he is. Jesus is described as the agent of creation. It's not to say that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not all involved, but Jesus is described as the agent of creation. Again, the words of Scripture bear this out. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Pretty clear there. Everything. Everything created by Jesus Christ. Soak that in for a moment. Everything that was created, created by Jesus Christ, that's humanity, but that's, that's all the atoms of reality. That's the plants that you see in the planters along the street and in your yard, that's the planets. That's the stars. What really drives this home is to realize we can't even get our minds around how much that means he created. What does it mean that he actually did the creating? He created all Things. And so then you find, who do people say Jesus is? I mean, so often, oh, some man. Okay, some religious figure. Oh, he sure was inspirational, whatever it was. But you realize he's more than a man, more than a carpenter, more than a religious figure. Jesus Christ is the creator. He created all things. All things were created through him. And then the end of this passage is going to say something Mind-blowing, they were created through him and for him. Jesus is the goal of all creation. Right? That's not even just to say, like, all of history, all of human history, whatever. All of it, in some way, is adding up to him. He is the goal. He is the purpose. So then you're beginning to say something even more mind-stretching. 
You had on this side of eternity, we'll say, Jesus Christ, the creator. So Jesus is able to stand at the beginning of all creation. But then he's also over here. He's the goal of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. Do you see why I, I say words fail me? What does that mean to say all of this is for him? Building up to him, leading to him. All of creation finds its meaning in Jesus Christ. If you were to say, oh, what is the purpose of it all? You could say Jesus. The famous Sunday school answer is actually capable of answering the ultimate question of reality. What's the point of it all? Jesus. Who can say such a thing? Who can be described in such terms? It's astounding. It's Jesus alone. There's none like him. We bring ourselves back to the context of the Colossians. Why do they need to hear this? Why is Paul launching off into all these deep truths of God for their situation? We'll come back to this idea that there's something lacking about only having Jesus. That you don't have the fullness of the Christian walk unless you have Jesus plus something. If someone's saying that, it begins to actually bring some order to this. Because Paul reminds them of who Jesus is. If you only have Jesus, what do you have? You have a great God. You have this staggering God. You have a God so big, so great, so majestic, that frankly you can't even imagine the categories properly. You cannot even dream of how great he is. That's what it means that you only have Jesus. You see how he's responding to what they are facing. If they have a Savior who is this great, and that's all they have, they're doing just fine. What are you going to add to that? If I say I'm giving you Jesus Christ, the one who created all things and for whom all things are created, what do you now want to add to that? What makes sense? What's compatible with that? What's of equal value of that? Anything? Right? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Nothing that those false teachers can be telling them they need is really necessary if they have Jesus Christ. A God this great is a sufficient Savior. There is none like Jesus in all of creation. And if we can make a little sub-point on that, there is none like Jesus in the spiritual realm. That's what we end up talking about. What Paul is talking about with those four different phrases, right? He talks about in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And it looks like he's explaining invisible. By saying whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We're not going to see some big distinction of what counts as a throne, what counts as a ruler. But all of these seem to be describing spiritual powers. You might say the angelic realm. Again, why do the Colossians need to hear this? Because it appears the false teachers talked a lot about heavenly powers. And I think we can imagine this. Someone says, oh, that's good, you know about Jesus, but do you know about all these angels? 
Do you know about all these demons? Do you know about all these spiritual things? Oh, you don't? Oh, you need to know about this. You can imagine someone saying that. It appears they talked a lot about heavenly powers, that those Colossians didn't have a full walk if they didn't understand those heavenly powers properly, if they weren't engaged properly with those heavenly powers. Paul's point then is however powerful any of these angels are, Jesus created them too. He created them too. And so part of us has to just grant angelic powers. We probably can't even grasp how powerful they are. And I, I don't want ever want to have a showdown, me versus an angelic power, right? We can grant just incredible power, but the mightiest spiritual power out there is totally dependent on Jesus Christ. So they, in that sense, are exactly like us. They don't know a single moment of being truly independent, truly self-sufficient. Every single one of them, good and evil alike, is completely dependent on Jesus Christ who created them. See, Jesus is supreme over all creation. And that includes spiritual power. So let's pause here. We'll wrap this here because there's so much more we've got to do in these weeks ahead. Lord, Lord. Jesus is so much more than you realize. And I say that with confidence, knowing that any number of you have walked with the Lord longer than I have walked. Jesus is so much more than you realize. Jesus is even more than the Savior. He's even more than the Savior. Now, I'm under no illusion that all of you have Jesus as your Savior. Every week, I know, I have the opportunity to talk to those who have not trusted him as Savior, and I want you to know what you need is just this. Jesus Christ is your Savior. The one who died on the cross rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's the one you need. Trust him. Turn from you. Turn from this world. Turn from your sin. Follow him. Trust that everything he did was enough to pay for you. He will save you. If you don't have him as savior, that's all you need to hear today. You need him as your Savior. But to you, the disciple of Christ, I, I want you to just have your, your mind stretched here, your whole horizon, spiritually speaking, stretched. Jesus Christ is more than just the Savior. And that's a big deal that he's the Savior, right? The one who's capable of bearing uncountable hells on the cross so that we could be... Uh, reconciled to God, the one who is mightier than death ascends into heaven, that sounds pretty big. And it is. And he's even more than that. See, Christian, Jesus Christ is bigger than what he has done for just you. Jesus Christ is bigger than what he has done for humanity. 
Jesus Christ is the very image of God. Jesus Christ is that final Adam who perfectly kept the law, who lived for his people in every way we needed him to live. Jesus Christ is the creator, the one powerful enough to create all things. Look anywhere you want. See the, the, the fingerprints of our creating God. Jesus Christ is the one who is the purpose of all creation. Everything, if you could zoom out far enough, everything in some sense is flowing to him. Everything is in some sense for him. Jesus Christ is the unrivaled power. And so if you could see these spiritual powers with your, with your naked eye, if you could see them for all their holiness, their power, or their evil malice, whatever it is you're looking at, they're all like bugs to him. They're tiny compared to him. Jesus is such a power that the most powerful beings that we can sort of imagine are tiny little things compared to him. Jesus is more than just the Savior, more than we realize. So why do we dive deeper? Why do we dive deeper into knowing Jesus? Bring it back to the personal. We want to know him more deeply because we want to love him better. Getting to know someone is actually a mark of loving them. Again, I think of my wife. Part of loving her is getting to know her. Not just telling her what I think she is or what I think she wants. It's learning it from her, getting to know her more deeply so I can love her better. It's the very same for our God. That you can and should love him by getting to know him more deeply. You would actually be so suspect if I said, I'm done getting to know my wife. I know her plenty. Say, that's a problem. That's not love. That's not a good husband. It's the same thing with our Lord. We don't just cut it off. I know plenty, Lord. I know enough to get to heaven. I'm done. No. That's treating him like a topic. That's treating him like a checklist. We remember that our God is personal. And so we, we love him by getting to know him better. And as we get to know him better, you are the one who's going to receive the comfort. The Colossians needed comfort in the face of false teaching, in the face of all these spiritual challenges. We need the same comfort. As we get to know him better, we actually have a deeper comfort. So, do you ever doubt? Yeah. Do you ever doubt his ability to save? Maybe you wouldn't say that. But somewhere in the back of your head, you're thinking, I don't know if he can pull this off. And it's going to be my eternal soul that suffers because of it. Do you ever doubt his ability to actually handle this dark, hostile world? You look at the world and it seems pretty fierce. It seems pretty deadly. It seems pretty dark. You look at that enough, maybe you begin to wonder, is Jesus sufficient for this? Is he actually powerful enough for this? See, when you dive deeper into Jesus Christ, when you at the heart level become more and more convinced of the greatness of Jesus Christ, doubts melt away.
If you are sitting there thinking, I know the creator of all this. I know the purpose of all of this. He is mightier than the mightiest spiritual beings. Seriously, do, do you think that something in this world is a problem for him? Do you think he's worried about any of it? Do you think any of them are going to make him break a sweat? He's sitting there coming up with a plan. How am I possibly going to outsmart these people? How am I going to overcome these people? No, he's not thinking any of that. When you realize the greatness of your Savior, doubts like that just melt away. If you think you are such a big problem, oh, how is he ever going to save me? Come back again. He is the creator of all things, the purpose of all creation, the one unrivaled in all power. Do you really think your baggage is too heavy for him? It can't be. The doubts melt away. We dive deeper into Jesus Christ, and we're the ones who are comforted. And as we know him better, as we know him more deeply, we will live the better lives that we long to live for him. There will be no more of this question of whether he's worth living for. Sometimes we are, again, wrestling with that. Is this worth it? The struggle? The sacrifice? All the hostility from the world? Is it worth it? You look on Jesus Christ in his greatness, the kind of greatness that Paul was talking about, and you say, of course he's worth it. Your heart screams it. Of course he is worth it. And there's not going to be any more of these things rivaling him as if they are more important than him. Right? Because that's the balance. Is it really worth sacrificing my career? Is it really worth sacrificing that relationship? Is it really worth sacrificing this? In that moment, it's almost like the scales are out. And you're looking over here and saying, that's really important. Maybe it's more important than Jesus. Look deeply at Jesus Christ. The, the image of God. The one who reveals him. The creator. The purpose. The unrivaled power. Look at him. And nothing over here can possibly be as important. Nothing over here even deserves to be compared. Fill your heart with the depths of who Jesus Christ is and all those things fade away. <clears throat> if you want to follow your God better, know Jesus more deeply. There is none like Jesus. So for his glory and for your good, believe today. However well you know this Jesus Christ, he is so much more than you realize. Let's pray. Our God, we bring feeble words and feeble hearts to praise one as great as our Savior. For we offer you what we have. We praise such a God as this. We thank you for Jesus Christ, by whom all things were created, for whom all things were created, the one who created even the mightiest spiritual powers, the one who created the reality that we depend on to live. Our God, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe today that truly there is none like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.